Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Julie Powell. I'm the author of Julie and Julia, and my second book is called Cleaving, A Story of Marriage, Meat, and Obsession. I'm going to read you a passage from that right now. This is really not what it looks like. The work is most often a delicate thing and bloodless. In the year and more that I've been doing this, I've gone whole days with no more evidence of my labors by evening than a small bit of gore on my shoes or a sheen of translucent fat on my hands and face. It's excellent for the skin, I'm told. So this is unusual, this syrupy drip, my arms drenched up to the elbows, my apron smeared with crimson going quickly to brown. I reach down into the plastic-lined cardboard box one more time, coming up with an organ weighing probably 15 pounds, a dense and slippery dead weight, a blood-soaked sponge. I slap it onto the cutting table, and it makes a sound like a fish flopping on the deck of a boat. The risk of dropping it on the floor is not inconsiderable. The box is deep, and when I reach to the bottom of it, my face brushed up against the bloody lining. Now I can feel a streak of the stuff drying stickily across my cheekbone. I don't bother to wipe it off. On what clean surface would I wipe it, after all? Besides, it makes me feel rather rakish. I take my scimitar from the metal scabbard hanging from a chain around my waist. For most work, I use my boning knife, an altogether smaller, finer thing, six inches long, slightly curved, with a dark rosewood hilt worn to satin smoothness by all the fat and lanolin that has been massaged into it. That little knife cracks open a haunch joint or breaks down muscle groups into their component parts like nothing else. But with this heavy, foot-long blade, I can, while pressing firmly down on the flesh with my right palm, slice straight through the liver in one dragging stroke. Thin, even slices. With the boning knife, I'd have to saw away to get through that bulk of organ meat, making for torn, jagged edges. And you wouldn't want that. You want the blade to slip through easily. Smooth. Final. More than a year ago, when I first told my husband, Eric, that I wanted to do this, he didn't understand. Butchery? he asked, an expression of mystification, perhaps even discomfort, screwing up his face. His suspicion hurt me. There was a time, just a few years before, when there was no trace of it in his heart. I knew I deserved it. But it was just so strange to have to try to explain— Strange to have to explain anything to Eric at all. I'd known him by then for 16 years, almost literally half my life. I knew him when he was a beautiful, shy, blue-eyed teenager in baggy shorts, a stretched-out sweater, and worn Birkenstocks, with a dog-eared paperback jutting out of one rear pocket. And almost at the beginning, I picked him out, decided he was the one I needed, It took most of a school year to snatch him from the swarm of pretty girls that seemed always to be circling. He so oblivious, he so sweet and gentle. But I managed it. God, I was invincible when I was 18. When it came down to it, I got pretty much whatever I went after. Want, take, have. That was my simple motto. 
And I was right. To take him, I mean. From the beginning, we were interlocking puzzle pieces. From the beginning, we nestled into the notion that our two lives were to be irrevocably woven into one. I now slice off eight pretty burgundy flaps of liver. The cut organ releases a metallic tang into the air, and yet more blood onto the table. Changing knives now, I delicately excise the tight, pale ducts that weave through the slices. Perfectly cooked liver should be crisp on the outside with a custardy, smooth center. Nothing tough or chewy should get in the way of that sensual quintessence. Six of these slices are for the gleaming glass and steel case at the front of the shop. The last two I set aside to wrap up and take home after work for a Valentine's Day dinner tomorrow. Once I thought the holiday merited boxes of chocolate and glittery cards, but in these last couple of eye-opening years, amid the butchery and wrenches of the heart, I've realized life has gotten too complicated for such sweet and meaningless nothings. I've even learned I'm okay with that. Eric and I married young, but that doesn't mean our union was precipitous. We'd already known each other for seven years by the time I donned that white organza princess gown and walked along that stone path on my father's arm to the bubbly notes of, My baby just cares for me. We could look right down to the bottom of each other and see what was swimming there, like fish flashing in clear mountain lakes. At our center wasn't sexuality or ambition, though we shared both. Deep understanding. That's what we had. The nagging voice I've all my life heard in my head, the one people might call addiction or restlessness or waywardness, but which is, to me, almost an embodiment, something outside of myself, impish, far from benign, but also inspiring and not entirely unconcerned with my self-interest. Eric believed in it. He feared it sometimes, but he believed in it. In 2002, when I turned 29 and we were living in Brooklyn and I was stuck in yet another in a long line of ill-paid, dead-end jobs, loving my husband, clinging to him, in fact, as the sole solace in a world that I figured, by and large, didn't have much use for me, but unhappy and beginning to feel I just didn't, in fact, have much of a talent for happiness. Eric understood that when the voice spoke to me, I had to listen. What if I cooked my way through mastering the art of French cooking? Like, in a year? What if you did? That's, what, 500 recipes? More than that. That's crazy, right? Right? Sure it is. You could blog about it. I think you should. He didn't even look confused. Eric could always divine for me just who I was and just what I could do. So, I did this crazy cooking thing, and I did it saucily, with style and courage. And I was rewarded. Suddenly, I was successful. A book deal, a career. Using the very stuff of my despair and frustration, I turned my life around, transformed myself from a depressed secretary into an author. I was, I thought, just what I wanted to be confident, brave, and well-paid. I was congratulated on my transformation, and because I was now a confident woman, I accepted the congratulations. But privately, I knew that I owed it entirely to Eric. He'd seen me as better than I was and had shown me the way to get there. If you'd told me then that he wouldn't understand when the voice spoke again, that I was capable of doing anything that could erode the faith of this most loyal of men, I'd never have believed you. But by the time I follow the whisper here, 
to this butcher shop two hours from my home in the city. I'd learned through bitter experience that I was wrong. It turns out that things, even perfect things, pieces that seem to fit, to work together, can warp and crack and change. It was confusing and distressing to find myself so soon after that whirlwind year came to a close, more or less where I'd been before. That wasn't really true, of course. I could not, without seeming churlish and ungrateful, deny my good fortune. The money and job offers and a book contract, the fans and friends, and, of course, the devoted husband. Eric and I seemed calmer together after weathering what I'd spent the last year putting us through. I had every reason for contentment, pride, fulfillment. So why did it all feel like, I don't know, like cheating somehow? If I pinched myself, I feared I'd wake up, disappear from this dream world in a puff of smoke. I was starry-eyed and vaguely discontented and had too much time on my hands. It was exactly the wrong time for the phone call I got that summer of 2004, a year after my cooking project ended, as I was putting the final touches on my very first book. A call from someone I'd not heard from in years, a half-remembered murmur coming across the line, sparking uncomfortable memories of a handful of long-ago late nights I'd nearly succeeded in forgetting. "'Hey, it's me,' he said. "'I hear you've been doing well for yourself. "'I've moved to New York. Let's get lunch sometime.' "'I realized that this could all look a little incriminating. "'A woman in a butcher shop in upstate New York, "'covered in blood and completely unruffled by that fact, "'wielding knives casually, lovingly manipulating offal "'with gore-begrimed fingers. "'No, I'm not a lover caught red-handed "'in the middle of a crime of passion,' or a psychopath in the midst of a ritual dismemberment. No humans were harmed in bringing you this scene. But still, I get why it would all make some folks, well, speculate. Speculate, maybe especially, about the expression on my face, which betrays more than just the professional indifference I'm trying hard to project. If you look closely enough, if you get past the formerly white apron and the blood and the big knives bristling at my hip and up to my eyes, I'll confess you might see something a bit unnerving there. A secret glow. A little thrill. As my friend Gwyn would say, makes a girl wonder where she's hiding the bodies. Those familiar with grisly 19th century British history might know that one popular theory among Jack the Ripper armchair criminologists posits that the killer was a practicing butcher. I have developed a small addendum to this hypothesis. I am by now fairly confident that should I want to surgically excise a streetwalker's liver, I could manage it. I will even confess that I can sort of imagine the appeal. Don't get me wrong— I'm not an advocate for slashing prostitutes' throats and rummaging through their innards as a valid lifestyle choice. But in a weird way, I see the butchering part of what Jack did as separate from the killing, the frenzy, the rage. And I see it as maybe containing the tiny kernel of sanity still left to him. Maybe it was his forlorn way of trying to fit the pieces back together, or at least understand how they once fit. I look at that cross-cut organ sitting on the table... It's working so mysterious, but its dimensions so satisfying, dense and symmetrical and glassy smooth, and I feel a sort of peace, a small piece of understanding. My hands are blue with chill, my lower back throbs, my left wrist aches, 
and in the cooler and back is a towering stack of pork sides waiting to be broken down before closing in three hours. I smile into my cup. I am far from home, right where I want to be. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.